1: Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. It's a down day for these markets. The Dow's down just under 500 points right now. Uh, the first time in three days we've seen that, in fact. So we're flipping the week and starting off on a different kind of note. And remember, earnings season, what remains of it, however that's going to go, earnings season does get underway tomorrow. Right now, like I said, we have about 2% decline for the blue chips, but look at that for the NASDAQ. It's only down 64 points right now, or 8 tenths of a percent. The S&P is stuck in the middle there, down about 1.9%. Oil is helping a little bit. It's managed to pull off a slightly bullish day after OPEC and its allies agreed to a historic production cut, 9.7 million barrels a day, but still seeing a lot of caution and skepticism across the energy patch. And WTI is only holding on to just less than a 2% gain right now, about 23.18 a barrel. In the last hour, we did have some positive comments from New York Governor Cuomo, who said, quote, I believe the worst is over if we continue to be smart about coronavirus. He added that hospitalizations are down substantially. Let's get to that and all of it. So much more of the market action. As always, we kick off this hour with Robert Pisani. Hi, Bob.
2: Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. As always, uh, we are off of the lows, but uh, it's, it's, we're, we're we were higher a little bit earlier. Now we're off of that. The key point here is we had a 24% move off of the lows recently, and that's uh, quite a move, 24% here. Laggards today, the stuff that did really well last week. Some of the airlines are down today. Transport's are weak. Retailers are generally on the weak side. Homebuilders, all these had great moves up last week. A little bit of profit taking today. We're going into earnings season. You'll hear from Dom in a minute on that. J.P. Morgan starts tomorrow. But uh, all down, this is typical to be down going into earnings season. But remember, most of these big names, 30% off their highs just five or six weeks ago. Industrials are weak right across the board. I think the main catalyst was probably the downgrade of Caterpillar over at Boeing. That's hurting Deere, Textron, all of the big global industrial names. Stay at Home's doing well, though, Kelly. Netflix, highest level since 2018, 6% move today. Guys, back to you.
1: I'm glad you mentioned Deere. Uh, We'll have more on that a little bit later on, Bob, but thanks, uh, we appreciate it. Bob Basani there. Well, if you're thinking this earnings season isn't going to matter, think again. We are about to learn stuff that could tell us a lot about which companies can continue to weather the coronavirus and which might not. Dom Chu is here with more for us. Dom?
3: All right. So, Kelly, the expectations probably tell you a lot. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. We just know it's going to be bad. But just how bad will it be? Take a look at the expectations right now for which sectors will be hit the worst during this upcoming earnings season. According to data from Refinitiv, if every earnings report comes in as expected, the energy sector will show a 50-plus percent decline over the same time last year. Industrials also hit by the coronavirus and shutdowns. Economic furloughing everything else that's happening down over 31 percent and consumer discretionary we know unless you're amazon or somebody with a great online omni channel supply chain consumer discretionary is down 31 percent those are the hardest hit sectors by coronavirus and remember these numbers don't even factor a full earnings report with that particular coronavirus meanwhile the ones hold up the best bob mentioned netflix communication services Forecasted to show a gain of 7% in terms of earnings. Technology, we're using more video conferencing, computers, PCs, virtual offices, a 2.5% gain there. And utilities, we're still using electricity, natural gas, water, that sort of thing. Those are up about 2%. So you'll see a theme developing, Kelly, the companies and industries that are going to be the most impacted and immune from the coronavirus. Back over to you.
1: Yeah, you're talking about utilities. I hope the power is still on uh, back on the home front right now, Dom. Right. Yeah, you guys, too, I'm sure. Dom, thanks. As we begin this week, the S&P 500 is down only 19 percent from its all time high in early February, and we're up 23 percent from the lows in late March. Does the market believe the worst is over? And is it right? Neil Ferguson this weekend warning, quote, don't bet on a quick global resurrection. For more, I'm joined by Eric Knutson, who's multi-asset class CEO at Newberger Berman, and Randall Ely is CEO of Edgar Lomax company, and it's great to have you both here. Uh, Eric, let me start with you. I mean, are you in the cautious camp about this recovery? What do you think the market's pricing in right now?
4: Yeah, we are. We're, our mantra is still safety first at this point. Uh, the It is good that markets have recovered to a certain extent, the 25% rally we've seen off the bottom, the return of liquidity to credit markets with significant action by the Fed and, and by um, now evidence of fiscal stimulus. But our view is that Equities at this point are pretty richly valued when you consider what we're going to see with earnings. Um, your reporter just said, we're not sure what we're going to see, but we know it's going to be bad. We need to see equity markets pivot from underwriting the path of the infection and stimulus to actually underwriting earnings and GDP growth. On Thursday, you had an a absolutely horrible jobless claims number and markets screamed on that stimulus. Um, we think that we need to see evidence of investors really paying attention to the true economics earnings and that brings us to a view that the, that the S&P 500 is range bound this year. I mean, perhaps it's front lows, uh, 2237 and 2800 on the high side. So okay. in this environment, we're, we're trimming equities on the rallies and looking to reinvest into safer areas, investment grade credit, et cetera.
1: Interesting, okay, so trimming your equity position, maybe moving into some of those investment grade credits. Randall, your point of view is a little different, right? I mean, you guys seem to be all in on the stock market.
5: Uh, well, well while, while I would never say all in, But we are believers that an investor should be a uh, long-term participant in markets Uh, because over history, although this pandemic is certainly new, none of us in in our lifetime has ever seen something like this. But in history, many different things have happened to market. And I mean, even the history during our lifetime, Mm -hmm. you go back to 1987. Also in this country, you had the the flu pandemic. In 1987, I'm sorry, 1918, Mm -hmm. as a result, we have lessons that we can learn. In the long run, Kelly, I think the key facts are this. People have to eat. They have to support themselves. And in order to do that, we are going to use the products and services of big companies. And at Edgar Lomax, we always look for big companies that have been profitable for a long time. They've been making lots of money, and they have banked that money and put it into good liquid investments, they are built to last. Okay. So at times like this, see, when we can buy at lower prices, we don't flee the market. We just pull our patients out and get ready for future profits, which are going to come.
1: Randall, let to me free. ask you, because two of the companies you guys do own right now are ExxonMobil and J.P. Morgan. How yeah. important are dividends to you, and how safe do you consider dividends for a company like J.P. Morgan to be? Uh, Exxon, of course, has also said it's, it's going to use this balance sheet to support the dividend if needed.
5: Uh, That's right. And that's the key thing about having a strong balance sheet, in other words, having cash. I think dividends are important, but I don't think they're everything. Both of these companies are in two of the sectors that performed the worst year-to-date. And that's part of the reason I selected them, to show how we invest. Our portfolio obviously has a lot more names. But these are companies that have a lot of money already, and they have been profitable. And whatever pressures they're going through, I expect them to continue to be profitable players in the future.
1: And Eric, before we go, uh, you mentioned some of the credits that you like. How uh, contingent is that on the Federal Reserve support? And do you expect that support to last for quite a while?
4: Well, it is a key element of it that the Federal Reserve is supporting that market that's putting liquidity back in the market um, from a risk-return standpoint, given where spreads are on investment-grade credit. We think it's a sharp ratio play right now in, in risky assets, and, and they're not that risky um, given, that, given that Fed support. I'd like to reiterate that. Uh, Randall's comment about high quality U.S. stocks, uh, that is where we are seeing best opportunity to the extent we are uh, biasing towards equities. It is towards the, the high quality, larger company names in, in U.S. equities. We're also saying to, to um, emphasize one of Randall's key points, take that long term view. If you believe that you will buy equities, then you can take advantage of volatility in here and get paid a lot for being you know, expressing the view that you'd buy equities at lower levels by writing um, index options, put options on the S&P 500 and capturing a very attractive premium. I think there's a lot of wisdom there.
1: Interesting. With well, both of okay. you. Okay. Yep. Quickly, Randall, go ahead.
5: Uh, what was that, Matt?
1: Did you want a, a final comment? Go ahead. I'll oh, give no. you the last well, one. First,
5: I want to I agree with, uh, you know, with, with, with what he said. This is a time to pick up uh, good quality uh, equities or, or the securities period. And the big thing is to remember patience. I also wish uh, to take this time to wish everyone the best, Kelly, all of your viewers, um, in getting through this pandemic. This is definitely a tough time for all of us. Absolutely. But the business of America is going to go on. And in the long run, patient investors will uh, uh, will be repaid well.
1: Very well put. Thank you both today. We appreciate it. Randall, Ellie, Eric Knutson joining me to talk about the stock market and coming up, a conversation on the halftime report that's going viral as Chamath Palahapatia makes some bold statements.
2: Are you arguing to let airlines, for example, fail? Yes. Why? I mean, how how does that make sense in the broader scheme of of the economy?
1: So should we let some of these companies go bankrupt? We'll debate that, tell you what else Chamath had to say. Plus some positive new results on a potential drug to help treat coronavirus. We've got all those details. And if you're looking to get a new mortgage anytime soon, the standards are going to be tougher than ever. Stay with us. Welcome back. Check on the airlines today. They're trading off all about four to, in some cases, more than 8 uh, percent for United as the industry is coming to terms with the strings attached to the government bailout. Phil LeBeau is here with the very latest for us. Phil.
2: Kelly, not only coming to terms, but frankly, they're not happy about it. They thought the $25 billion that was being set aside in payroll cash grants would be that, grants that did not have to be repaid. Turns out 30% of the money they're being offered comes as a low-interest loan. So as you take a look at the airline stocks, and as you mentioned, they're all down between 5 and 8% today. 70% of the cash they are being offered would not have to be repaid. The other 30% low-interest loan from Treasury. They have to guarantee there are no layoffs before September 30th, which all of the carriers have already committed to. Stock warrants to the Treasury equal to about 3% of the value of whatever the uh, cash grant value is. When you take a look at the major airline stocks right now... Keep in mind that Fitch last week cut the credit ratings on all of the major airlines in the United States. And why did they do that? They're worried about these guys taking on even more debt. Remember, it's not uncommon that we've seen these airlines take out another billion, billion and a half, or two billion, sometimes more, either in loans or in credit lines over the last three weeks. And here's the reason why. Passenger levels, they have pretty much bottomed out down around 90 to 100,000 passengers a day. In fact, yesterday was the lowest day ever. According to the TSA, in terms of passengers and crew members who were screened at U.S. airports, way down there on the bottom, 90,000, just over 90,000 were screened. We think that's probably close to the bottom there, Kelly, though it's a little hard to tell at this point. Bottom line, look for the airlines either later today or more likely tomorrow to say OK, here's our decision when it comes to these grants.
1: Wow. OK, Phil, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Phil Abo there. The airline industry is one group of companies that venture capitalist Chamath Palihapitiya says should not be bailed out by the government. Listen.
3: On Main Street today, people are getting wiped out. And right now, rich CEOs are not. Boards that had horrible governance are not. Hedge funds are not. People are. It's happening today to individual Americans. And what we've done is disproportionately prop up and protect, you know, poor performing CEOs, companies and boards. And you have to wash these people out.
1: Well, for more, I'm joined by Henry Blodgett, who is the founder and CEO of Business Insider, and James Pethokoukis, who is economic policy analyst for the American Enterprise Institute, and he is a CNBC contributor. Henry, I'll start with you because I think you find some merit in Chamath's comments. Explain.
6: Well, first of all, hello. Thank you so much, Kelly. Great to be here. And and thanks for watching, everybody. Um, I I think he phrased it in a very aggressive way, which obviously raised people's hackles. But I I think philosophically, and I say this as an investor who will take it in the teeth if the airline equities go to zero, I, I don't think the government should be in the business of protecting shareholders. I do think in this case, it is in all of our interests to continue to have our airlines operate. And the government can help out with that and they can help out employees, but they don't need to invest and protect the shareholders. That's the key. It's a core but premise me, of capitalism. Wait, Equity me, investing is risky. Yeah, um, so let, that's but, my belief.
1: Before I bring in uh, Jimmy, let me just ask you about one thing. That, so Chamath specifically was saying, put them into bankruptcy. And he said, and I quote, put the airlines into bankruptcy no, you know, no one will be fired. The industry doesn't want you to know they can go through a chapter 11. Nothing's he said. The employees would end up owning more. And he literally said, quote, the employees won't get wiped out. If the airlines go into bankruptcy, do you believe that the employees would not get wiped out by that?
6: I think if you threw all of the airlines into bankruptcy together right now with all of the pressure on banks and so forth, w- would you have folks who could lend the money to have the ba- the air? the airlines keep operating, I think it might be challenging. So I think you you can manage it. The government can put money into these companies with a whatever restructuring terms. And I think the best way to do it is is what the government's doing, which is lend money, but take equity warrants or equity ownership that severely dilutes the current shareholders okay. who don't deserve to be protected. This was a a, a disclosed risk. It's in the prospectus and the risk factors, saying a pandemic could severely hurt their business. Everybody knew this was a possibility. They made the decision to invest anyway. So I don't think equity shareholders deserve protection, but I also don't think the government should just let the company suddenly go bankrupt yeah. altogether. Let I me, think br- that would create Jimmy. Chaos, let me bring right? you
1: in uh, with yeah. a line from uh, the journal this weekend. Uh, this was a letter from Donald Boudreau, who said, unlike with true creative destruction, businesses are being destroyed today uh, unilaterally by government command, saying this is not creation preceding destruction. It's destruction preceding creation.
7: Well, it's, it's destruction, destruction. And you can blame government, but certainly had government said nothing about shutdowns, Uh, Most people are not going to get on planes. They're not going to go to restaurants. They're not going to go to sporting events. So uh, government was sort of, I think, following what most people's, I think, instincts were at some point. But remember that, you know, Chamath was making a, a really a broader point and not just airlines, that he thinks you have all these companies which seem to be in some financial difficulty because they made a mistake during the good times. They didn't have the mother of all rainy day funds for a complete economic collapse. Uh, You know, listen, that to me sounded more like Andrew Mellon, 1929. Uh, We need to liquidate stocks, you know, liquidate real estate. We have to purge the rottenness of the system. Uh, But the same people who didn't like the dividends, didn't like like the stock buybacks, were not calling for a massive rainy day fund. They wanted that money invested and paid and paid to workers. Uh, They weren't saying it needed to be kept under under the mattress. So you really can't have it both ways. And this is really a a a once-in-a-century thing. And my concern is keeping individuals whole, businesses whole, and pushing money out the door as fast as possible.
1: Jimmy, what would it look like? So, again, Chamatha's core point is let the airlines file for bankruptcy if you allow that the investors get wiped out the employees don't and he says the employees won't get wiped out and they end up running more is he right about that or would bankruptcy actually take a very high toll on the employees themselves from this process too
7: i mean every time we've seen a restructuring i mean there are job losses where are these people going to go to get jobs uh where nobody nobody nobody's hiring it seems to me that if you, and, and also, in you know, his statements, he was talking about, well, you know, it's OK with the Fed's doing right now. We want We don't want to have a lot of uncertainty. What he is calling for not, and not just the airlines, because really he was making a broader point about zombie companies everywhere, is that he would inject a tremendous amount of additional uncertainty into the into the uh, U.S. economy. Uh, you would certainly you would have people losing jobs. Uh, you know, more more drops in the stock market. Uh, you know that also contributed to the financial crisis. We don't need that. We need to, the singular goal of economic policy is to get through this. Not try to draw distinctions about good companies, bad companies, moral hazard. That's not the situation. It is not 2009.
6: We should not fight the last war. Henry. Well, the only thing that I would say to that is some of the companies did make decisions that during the last five to 10 years that has left them more exposed than other companies. And you can talk about buybacks or dividends, tens of billions of dollars going out the door. And you can say, hey, well, that you know, come on. They, they, they shouldn't have been required to protect against this. And and that's true. But if they had kept the cash in the company, they would be in a much, much stronger position. And effectively, if we just go in and give away free money with no strings attached whatsoever, is you're actually punishing the companies that don't need it. Because they won't take as much. They kept it on the thing. They, their stocks did worse in the good times and, and so forth. So that's where it gets complicated. And again, I, I, to Jimmy's point, I don't I do not think you should suddenly force all the companies into bankruptcy. I do think the government should help. It's great that we have airlines. We want to keep them in place. But I don't think the equity shareholders should be protected. Quick, quick and
1: last I word, that Jimmy. Yeah, right. I <laughs> so agree with that. I'll give it to you.
6: It's good. it's good we have airlines. Let's
7: keep airlines. 100% agreement. And I don't believe in free money either.
1: All right. Well, you sum that up uh, pretty quickly. Anyway, uh, guys, thank you both. We appreciate it. Good you discussion bet. today. Uh, James Petokoukis. To Henry Blodgett, thank you Thank you so much. Coming up, how Apple and Google are turning your cell phone into a coronavirus tracker. We'll tell you what the two are up to. Plus, non-baked tech lenders got the green to participate in the small biz lending program, the green light, that is. They've been preparing for weeks and say they'll be faster and more efficient. We've got the details ahead. And Wall Street gets bullish on delivery and coffee. We'll explain where those upgrades came from today. A reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two.
8: Welcome back. Let's get some of the
1: biggest calls of the day. We begin with FedEx, which was upgraded by Bank of America to buy with a $140 price target. FedEx is up at 123 today, about 1%. Anyway, the firm thinks the recent move by Amazon to pause its shipping with Amazon is good for FedEx. They're also bullish on the integration of their express and ground networks, which they say will reduce costs. And that FedEx has ample liquidity. And again, the balance sheet is a real theme right now. Not a huge rebound in FedEx, uh, but still a, a bullish call for them today. Next, a double upgrade Upgrade to Duncan by Credit Suisse with a $67 price target. The analyst says the company's 100% franchise business model is one of the most attractive in the sector. They also see limited risk of mass closures given the health of the franchisee system and the attractive category dynamics. And Duncan, they say, could benefit also post-outbreak from an increase in digital sales. Duncan shares are still down 2.5% today. And going the other way is in terms of the upgrade downgrade story, Deer, and this is what Bob Bassani mentioned off the top of the show, Deer was downgraded by Goldman Sachs to neutral with $150 price target. It's the reasoning that is hurting the whole sector. Goldman sees pressure on Deer's earnings that could be greater than in prior recessions because of the global broad-based nature of this downturn. They also say given the magnitude of this shock, they think the recovery is likely to be slow uh, for Deer's consumers. Deer shares are down 5.5% nearly on that downgrade today to just under 138. Again, the price target is 150. Well, let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic now. Rahel Solomon has our headlines at this hour. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Let's start in New York, where the coronavirus death toll has topped 10,000. However, Governor Cuomo also says that daily deaths fell below 700 for the first time in a week and that other key figures are leveling off. Cuomo says he looks forward to easing restrictions. He says he'll be making an announcement later with other, other governors in the region about a reopening plan, but he also warns it will not be a quick process.
2: It's not going to
6: be we flick a switch and everybody comes out of their house and gets in their car and waves and hugs each other and the economy all starts up. I would love to say that's going to happen. It's not going to happen that way.
0: Meantime, President Trump has
1: tweeted he will make the call on when to reopen the nation's economy, not state governors. Trump says he will make a decision shortly. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. All right, right, Rahel, thank you so much. Meanwhile, we got new data on Gilead's COVID-19 treatment drug Remdesivir. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest. Meg, what can you tell us?
9: Hi, Kelly. Well, people were very much anticipating these results. And what we got was information on patients who had used remdesivir on what's known as compassionate use. So those are very sick patients who were not included in clinical trials. Gilead putting out results from 53 of these patients showing in a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that about 68% of them showed clinical improvement, meaning uh, the level of oxygen support that they needed. 30 patients included in this study uh, were intubated to use ventilators, and 17 of those patients were able to come off that support um, after treatment with the drug. But seven patients in this study died. Um, so, it, of course, it's not a silver bullet. And there are limitations to the data, s- specifically that it's compassionate use. So there wasn't a control group to compare results against. Um, Dr. Jonathan Grind, the leader, uh, lead author of the New England Journal study saying, quote, currently there's no proven treatment for COVID-19. We cannot draw definitive conclusions from these data. But the observations from this group of hospitalized patients who received remdesivir are hopeful. So that word hopeful is one that a lot of people are using to describe these results. But we are going to see clinical trial data coming up later this month and in May. And you're already hearing people talking about potential accelerated approval or emergency use authorization even coming up as soon as next month if those data look good. So we're going to be highly anticipating those, Kelly. You know,
1: Meg, speaking of the treatments, one thing that I keep following is this discussion of how well the ventilators work uh, for patients. When Governor Cuomo said only 20 percent of people come off when everyone was shocked. And now I know doctors in New York have in some cases had to turn to other methods because of the ventilator shortage, including CPAP masks. Do we know anything about whether kind of that oxygen only treatment will end up being at least no more harmful than the terrible experience of being on a ventilator, especially given the shortages of ventilator medicines you described?
9: Yeah, the well, there's a shortage of ventilator medicines, uh, and then concerns about shortages of ventilators themselves. And there have been several reports out about uh, whether ventilators, uh, how helpful they are, whether you know just oxygen support, as you mentioned, could uh, be helpful. Um, I haven't seen great data on that, so I'd want to really dig in to be able to give you a good answer. But certainly, people are examining every. Um, possible tool uh, right now as we are seeing these shortages. Yeah,
1: no, for sure. Just, just something to watch. I also know we had this uh, sort of, a, speaking of the testing front, a stumbling block in terms of the Abbott drug and or the machines that it sent to help with coronavirus tests. What do we know about that?
9: Yeah. So we've been seeing some reports that uh, states uh, and their state public health labs are frustrated because they don't have enough of these Abbott tests to be able to use. Um, Trying to kind of dig into this story, I talked with the company and they pointed out they have shipped more than 500,000 of these rapid tests to their customers around the country. Um, There also was a centralized purchase from the HHS uh, and those they distributed to the states and some of the reports um, that you know the Wall Street Journal reported on over the weekend um, may be that you know the CDC and HHS uh, only allocated maybe a hundred tests for these state public health labs to run. Um, of the tests themselves, you know Abbott says uh, this is the lab instrument test that's a high throughput test. They've shipped more than a million of those to U.S. customers. But what we're hearing, Kelly, is sort of a disconnect between the available supply of tests and them actually being able to be run and for everybody to be able to get one. So that's a problem across the country and not just with these Abbott tests, but with tests in general, it appears. No,
1: for sure. It's trying to ramp it up so quickly, but even to have the shortage of uh, test kits is frustrating. Meg, thanks. We appreciate it. Thanks. Meg Terrell with the very latest for us there. Ahead, the outlook for the economy may be negative, but the outlook for the home builders isn't. We'll explain why even as those shares trade lower today. Plus, we'll check on how the small business lending program is going with the CEO of Jersey Mike's, and he's going to mention how they're trying to help the community. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. About half past the hour, let's check in on the markets. The Dow's down just under 500 points. That's its first lower day in three. Same for the S&P and NASDAQ. S&P's down 1.8%. Dow's down 2%. NASDAQ only down about two-thirds of 1%. But in terms of the sectors, all 11 are lower in the S&P, and that is led by real estate, financials, and industrials, the weakest there with declines of 3 to 5%. Three names in the Dow are positive today. They are Walmart, Intel, and Chevron. Caterpillar is the biggest loser after a downgrade this morning. And it's another rough day for the cruise stocks, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian, both down 12 to 14 percent. On the flip side, there are a couple of 52-week highs today. Dollar General is one of them, Regeneron, Newmont Mining, interestingly, and Netflix. And Netflix continues its run this year, though shares now up 22 percent since Jan 1. Let's check in on oil as well, which is barely higher today, and not much of a rally after this deal between the Saudis and Russia that's officially in the books, and in fact now we're up less than 1 percent. Brian Sullivan just spoke with Saudi's energy minister. Joins me now with those highlights. Brian.
10: Yeah, thank you very much, Kelly. We did a, a 20 minute or so interview with uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, who is the Saudi energy minister as well. So that was a welcome treat, long ranging interview. Try to get the whole thing up if we can on CNBC.com for you. Uh, but really, the point that he was hammering at the beginning was that this deal for a cut is larger than the market believes it is obviously the headline number that everybody's talking about is that OPEC plus after four days of tense negotiations cut 9.7 million barrels a day but uh, his highness's view is that basically no it's higher than that because remember production was elevated at the beginning of April so he told us that the cut was actually closer to 12 and a half million barrels a day listen to a clip.
6: The number is way
7: much bigger. Uh, it's twelve 12.5, 12.5 million barrels. Uh, my calculus is as follows. The 9.7 is true. Uh, we are doing 1.3 to bring us back to the 8.5. The UE this is uh, as, a, uh, as a result of our high production in April. The UE is also coming by about a million. And I believe Kuwait has uh, made also another announcement of they're coming down by about half a million more than what they were uh, doing.
10: So, Kelly, he's saying there's a lot of math there. Twelve and a half million from OPEC plus from the highest production numbers. He also added later on in the interview that he thought the G20, which includes the United States, of course, I'll call them the bank nations Brazil, America, Norway and China, and um, Canada, could do more than the 3.7, sort of that they're semi-promising. He thought we could get to 18 or 19 million barrels a day when all is said and done.
1: Wow. So, Brian, the president continues to say that if that you know he thinks it's more like 20. What, what do you think that's based on? I mean, if, if we're at 12 and a half from the highs, according to Saudi, could add a few more million barrels a day, like you said. Uh, but do all eyes turn to Texas now, to the American producers?
10: They do. And I asked him about the president's tweets, by the way, in this interview, I said, can we get the 20? And, you know, he didn't want to obviously correct or not correct President Trump. But he said, listen, if we go 12.5 million for OPEC plus 3.7 million for G20, they do a few million more through natural declines. Maybe to your point, this Texas Rail Commission, they're going to impose production quotas on April 21st. We don't know, but they could. He's not saying we're getting to 20 million, but he made the case with me that we could get to 19-plus, assuming everybody went big. He also wanted to send out a message to U.S. Shale, which hopefully we'll get more of the interview up uh, very soon, that that this was not an attack on U.S. Shale. He's very adamant about that, Kelly. He said this is not an attack on U.S. Shale. This was unfortunate timing of a disagreement between Russia and Saudis, you know, back on March 6th, when they sort of split and the price war sort of began. They're not looking for the collapse of the U.S. shale market. He made those points very strongly with me in the interview as well. We'll hopefully do more later on today. And we're trying to get the whole thing up uh, on CNBC.com later on today. Brian, so, really? There's our, uh, our interview with, with uh, Ben Salman.
1: Right. And on the other side of this, real quickly, Russia is on the wire saying a total global oil output cuts of 15 to 20 million barrels a day in the May-June time frame is likely. So add all of this in. My question is, why isn't oil up more today?
10: Well, first off, if we get to 20 million, it's going to surprise a lot of people. You might see oil move. Right now, we're nowhere near there. Remember, this doesn't take place until May first. Also, Kelly, a lot of people are out there with dire predictions about demand over the next couple of months. How long is this going to last? I think that's the reason oil had a little move on this initial news a couple of days ago. I think there was your your rally. Yeah. Could we get to 20 million? Maybe. But hey, Kelly, if production is down by 35 million. It's still a pretty dire situation, but it's, it's not nothing. Anyway, like I said, we'll try to get more of that interview up later on through the day.
1: No, it's great stuff. Brian, thank you. We, we really appreciate it. Brian Sullivan there sure. with the very You're latest welcome. for us. Let's turn now to Square and PayPal, which are among the non-bank tech-focused companies that have just been approved by the government to participate as lenders in the emergency loan program. Kate Rooney is here with more. Uh, Kate, is this going to be a big deal for their businesses?
0: Yeah, that's what we're hearing. So after weeks of lobbying, Square, PayPal, and Intuit were approved to distribute these loans through the Paycheck Protection Program. PayPal is already taking applications. Square and Intuit plan to roll out their programs this week. I spoke to the head of Square Capital, Jackie Reesus, this morning. She tells me that they are only taking applications that they can immediately send to SBA, so they're not sitting on that paperwork. FinTech's argument for being included is that they already specialize in lending to coffee shops and restaurants which have been hit especially hard by the COVID crisis. They can facilitate loans as small as $500 that banks typically won't service. They also say they can do it faster than banks. But the SBA guidance says certain steps still have to be done manually, which takes away some of that speed advantage. Kelly. All right. Kate
1: Rooney with the latest. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let's dive deeper now into the loan process for small businesses and how some are trying to give back during this time of need. Joining me now is Peter Cancro. He's the founder and CEO of Jersey Mike's, which is a sandwich franchise with more than 1,700 stores in the U.S. Peter, it's great to see you in full disclosure. I had a number 16 regular on white every day of my third trimester uh, last time around, so thank you very much. You got me through. Um, Have you guys applied for some uh, emergency loans?
11: Yes, our timeline started uh, March 29th, Sunday, Night, we had everybody in the country, all the owners on about 475 of them, and we went through the entire process with a couple of experts, and uh, we learned the process of filling out the paperwork. So uh, we now have it in and and done, and now are waiting for the SBA number, um, which some have received and most haven't. There's 30 million small businesses, and there's a big backlog, of course, but. We're optimistic that uh, we'll hear something this week towards the end.
1: Uh, what's the process been like in terms of what the bank is telling you? We're hearing a lot of, of differences by who your, what, who your bank is, what they say the rules are, and obviously right. if you have so many different uh, franchisees, I imagine you're dealing with a lot of different banks potentially.
11: So, so it helps with, uh, if you have an existing bank relationship, of course, because in 08 and 09, they established some stringent mm-hmm. rules about checking out your business uh, further but if you already have an existing bank relationship, it'll move the process along quicker. Um, So we've worked through a couple of finance companies. A lot of owners have gone through local banks. Uh, So, so far it's moving. And when I first heard about it, I really, myself, I couldn't believe it, that you would get eight weeks of payroll. You look back over the year, it's gross payroll. If somebody gets paid $20 an hour times 10 hours, that's $200 gross, and that you'll get eight weeks of payroll to help your business survive. And uh, hopefully it will be put out in the next week or two or three. Um, it's going to be an unbelievable uh, thing the government's doing.
1: One more question about the business. I want to ask about what, what else you are doing. But, you know, what is uh, revenue like? What is that trend? What, how has it been in terms of keeping employees or having to furlough any? I mean, give us some color about what, what effect coronavirus has had.
11: So our shops uh, with close to 2,000 47 states There are small uh, rosters. We have like 12 or 15 people on each shift, on each store, and we've been fortunate uh, that we have not had to let anybody go. Um, So we're staying open for takeout, delivery, uh, third-party delivery, and uh, online ordering, so keeping the people at the curb or at the door to pick up. So we're down, but uh, not as much as most. Uh, Incredible. Uh, We've sustained, I think, because of the giving in the community that we've been doing and it's unbelievable The customers have really rallied and supported us.
1: Right, and I mean, many, I mean, I would say that you're doing your part for the community just by keeping people employed, obviously, and trying to be entrepreneurial to meet this challenge. Uh, but what else are you guys doing to give back?
11: So now all the stores, uh, our mission statement as a company is giving, making a difference in someone's life. And we've been doing that for, since the beginning. And uh, it's incredible. We fed the Freedom Ship in New York Harbor. We fed the ship in LA. Um, The Hoboken police in New Jersey showed up as a tribute. It's on our Facebook and uh, Instagram. Incredible. They just showed up with uh, sirens and police cars uh, because the owner there was giving for the last four weeks to local first responders, and uh, it was just incredible. So across the country, to the hospital staff, nurses, uh, feeding them nonstop. We've given out over, you know, to put a number on it, over 2 million subs so far. And we expect, again, not to stop because the need is so great.
1: No, and I know that they appreciate it. And even, like I said, a lot of your everyday customers really appreciate you doing what you can to stay open. Thank you, sir.
11: Thank you. Thanks, Thanks
1: for joining me today. That's Peter Cancro. He is the CEO of Jersey Mike's. Coming up, Apple and Google are teaming up on a bold and ambitious plan to try to track the coronavirus. How would it work and what are the privacy implications? We will dig into that. And it's about to get harder and harder to get a mortgage. What's going on with the mortgage market and what it'll mean for you after this? Google and Apple, two of tech's biggest rivals, are teaming up to help with coronavirus contact tracing. This is an unprecedented partnership, but also one that raises some
0: concerns. Deirdre Bosa is here with those details. Deirdre. So, Kelly, that is key. For contract tracing to work, it needs widespread adoption. And nearly everyone in America and even the world use either an Apple or a Google operating system. So that means that there is no app that you need to download. It's already here right in your phone. Now, the method uses Bluetooth technology that tracks whether phones have been within a certain distance of each other using anonymous identifier beacons. Now, of course, um, there is a privacy part to all of this, which you alluded to, Kelly. A tracking system run by big tech would have been unthinkable here in the United States just a few weeks ago. So Apple and Google trying to get ahead of some of those concerns. For one this system would be decentralized. Users would have to opt in and voluntarily report infections. Locations and personal information will not be collected. Now, I spoke to one privacy expert, a senior uh, research fellow, Brent Sorkup. He notes that this service reveals far less than user information than the typical mapping, dating um, or restaurant review apps that most Americans do use regularly. Now, critics, however, they point To the enormous reach that these two companies have already to be able to use such a system and use it so effectively and say that this could only be the start, this could be a slippery slope where they collect more data for other uses in the future.
8: No,
1: Kelly? this is going to be one of the trickiest national conversations I think we have between how to reopen for coronavirus needing this kind of partnership and not having it be too intrusive. So let me put that mm-hmm. entirely aside, Deirdre, for now and ask you about this news from Amazon today that the company going to start to resume shipping of non-essential items. What do we know?
0: That's right. So we do know that they are allowing more non-essential items into fulfillment centers, which means that it's more likely that you're going to be able to get them. And really, it's a signal that Amazon is becoming, again, more like Amazon. This is the company, remember, that pioneered two-day, one-day shipping. It has been absolutely inundated by the number of requests, the demand that it's been seeing from customers. So it's only been a shipping essential goods. This is the start of getting back to normal. And to do so, Amazon has been hiring by the thousands, hiring about 100,000 workers over the last month and this morning announcing that it's looking to hire another 75,000 workers to get these deliveries going again. Back to you.
1: Interesting. Again, maybe another sign uh, of a step towards normalization. Deirdre, thanks. Mm-hmm. Up ahead, mortgage loans are getting harder to come by as lenders tighten standards amidst this crisis. What will that mean for the housing industry? We will explore that. Speaking of housing, Wall Street is getting bullish on the home builders. Look at KB Home. It's down 14% today. Uh, These declines notwithstanding, we will tell you why confidence might be on the upswing. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's a big week for home builder data with confidence and housing starts due out. So far, sales have stalled dramatically. But unlike in the last recession, some are saying the builders could be a bright spot in the economy. Diane Olick is here with the
8: details from Washington. Diana. Kelly, the coronavirus is hitting the home builders. Ninety-six percent of builders polled by the National Association of Home Builders said it was hurting buyer traffic, and 72 percent said it was a major problem. More than three-quarters cited problems with the willingness of workers to report to projects. Still, analysts at Raymond James point to outstanding housing fundamentals through February and said if the outbreak of COVID-19 infection is contained soon, perhaps the deepening shortage of available housing inventory might help U.S. home values remain resilient in this recession. Eventually, we think a rapid reacceleration in home building activity could help provide a much needed booster shot for the US economy in the recovery process. Now Lennar, one of the nation's largest home builders, put out guidance Friday saying that while sales were obviously slowing, its balance sheet was strong and it said we are taking all appropriate steps to reduce construction costs, SG&A expenses and other cash outflows. Now several builders have seen analyst upgrades in the past week. The only wild card of course now is that it's getting much harder to get a mortgage. As lenders really tighten standards in response to higher risk in the market. Kelly?
1: Yeah, we're gonna talk about that in a moment. Diana, though, what's with the big declines today for the ITB and the rest of the, the space?
8: Well, that's the broader market, you know, the declines on that. But we're actually seeing the ITV over the last five days up over 6 percent. So while it's falling with the rest of the market today, it has been pretty strong over the last week. And that's because mortgage rates are falling back down again. Harder to get a mortgage, but rates are lower. And the builders are seeing some demand, though a lot less traffic. And For the builders, actually, some are, are experimenting with drive-through closings. So they're really working to make that process easier.
1: Yeah, especially the longer this goes on. Dana, thanks. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. As she mentioned, applying for a mortgage will be tougher these days. J.P. Morgan is raising borrowing standards this week for most new home loans. Its customers now need a credit score of at least 720% down. If the other banks follow suit, how will this impact the whole industry? Joining me is Andy Walden. He is director of market research at Black Knight. Andy, it's good to see you again. Why are they tightening standards so much?
12: You know, and it's, it's pretty usual behavior. Anytime you see an increase in risk or uncertainty in the market, the first thing that tends to take place is they step back on the amount of risk that they're willing to take on. And, and one of the easy ways to do that is increasing uh, credit score standards.
1: Won't they make more money, though, if they put out more mortgages?
12: Uh, typically, yes, but I think what you see in, in that J.P. Morgan announcement is they're shifting those resources from the purchase side over to the refinance side. And, and when you look at it from a lending perspective, they're dealing with dueling risks right now, right? So from a purchase side, they have a risk of taking on more risk in, in new homeowners. Uh, on the refinance side, they're facing a risk of paying homeowners refinancing out of their portfolio and then losing those revenues. So they're really killing two birds with one stone by reducing the amount of risk that they're taking on by also retaining the, the clients that they have in portfolio.
1: Interesting. Uh, still, for the rest of the housing market, it's terrible news. And so I wonder if someone's going to step up into that void after 8 09, We saw obviously the non-bank lenders become the biggest part of the market. Can they step up now?
12: Yeah, and that's exactly right. So if you look at the large banks, they really have been very risk averse ever since the financial crisis. And if you look even back before COVID, the average credit score on purchase loans from those big banks was in the 750 range. So maybe that 700 credit score sounds a little worse than it really is. They really haven't been participating in that lower end of the market in recent years.
1: So finally on this, do you think that, you know, for the housing market in general, what we're seeing will now put a break on even the small amount of activity there is or have less of an overall effect?
12: Yeah, and I think when you're looking at the housing market over the uh, over the near term, right, I, I think it's important to take a bifocal view, right. And if you look over the next few months, maybe not as much of an impact. We've already seen a, a decline in foot traffic out there, and folks looking for homes. You're seeing a down, decline in. in Uh, online home searches. You're seeing a decline in listings out there already. So this may have a marginal impact on near-term housing fundamentals. If you look over the long run, potentially, right, and I think maybe what you're seeing from some of these companies is they're trying to get a better feel for what we see in unemployment in coming weeks, what the risks are down term, and then they can adjust accordingly.
1: Right. And you guys, I mean, yourselves have some Kind of alarming numbers where you talk about how many delinquencies we could see on people, you know, on mortgages if we get an unemployment rate at 10 percent, 2 million delinquencies. You know, we're talking about 30 percent unemployment potentially, and that's 19 percent delinquencies. So what's that what effect will that have across the industry?
12: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we're starting to see those numbers come in already. If you look at some of the actuals data, and we've started to collect daily data, you're seeing the MBA reports and numbers out there as well. They're all pretty well in line. And what we're seeing so far is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 to 2 million homeowners that may have already become uh, delinquent or, or in need of those forbearance plans is probably a better way uh, to say that. So you're already seeing pretty significant volumes. To put that in historical context, if we compare that to the Great Recession, it took two years before we saw 2 million homeowners become delinquent back in 2008 Now we're seeing that level of forbearance volume in a couple of weeks. So some significant run-ups, and I think everybody's kind of waiting to see where unemployment goes from here and where those forbearance and and risk numbers go.
1: Right, exactly, and see if that worsens the problem already of uh, mortgages existing for the people who need them. Andy, it's good to see you. Thanks. We appreciate the info as always.
12: All right. Thanks, Kelly.
1: Andy Walden with Black Knight. Well, our special breaking news coverage will continue after this break. Tyler Matheson will join me for Power Lunch. We'll get the latest on the government's effort to get Main Street money from our own Kate Rogers. Plus, we'll talk to former PIMCO chief economist Paul McCulley. He sounds optimistic that once the economy comes off lockdown will be very much a going concern. He'll explain after this. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,